Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, and we will cover the whole chapter. Just a note of something that you probably already know, which is at the speed we've already gone through Isaiah, I'm not covering everything that's in here. (laughs) I'm trusting that you are also um, studying the scriptures and that we will uh, continue to study the book of Isaiah for our whole lives, um, seeking to find the truth there. But hopefully we're uh, growing to know more and more about this prophecy and about this prophet and most importantly about, about God himself. Isaiah chapter 5 is our text. What do you do when you try everything, but you fail to get the results that you are looking for? Maybe you could think about a recipe, maybe something you were making for Thanksgiving, and you just can't get it right. Or maybe uh, a problem at work, and you've tried all the different solutions and everything, but the problem just will not resolve. Uh, maybe you're playing a video game and there's just this one part you, you can't get past. You've tried everything and you can't figure out what to do next. Or maybe it's a home repair project uh, that you're just not sure how to how to fix it. You try and try, but nothing turns out the way that you had hoped. Uh, maybe on a deeper level, you could you felt that with a relationship, that you're trying to do your best to resolve a conflict or to show love or to communicate clearly, but everything just seems to to backfire. Everything's misunderstood or misconstrued. Maybe you've even tried to minister to someone, to encourage someone, but but everything you try seems to have the opposite effect. What do you do when you try and try and fail to get the results that you're hoping for? If you've ever felt that, that kind of frustration, then you can relate in some way to God's heart towards his people in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 gives us a glimpse into the Lord's response to a frustrating situation. And it teaches us something about God. It teaches us that God's patience and love are great and that his judgment is just. Isaiah 5 teaches us that God's patience and love are great. And great is too weak of a word to use, but that's what we'll go with. God's patience and love are great. And his judgment is just. And as we look at this chapter and consider God's heart and God's character, my hope and hopefully your hope is to be shaped more into God's image, but also to to see the ways that we might incite God's just judgment and how we might walk more faithfully in his ways. God's patience and love are great, and his judgment is just. Let's begin by reading Isaiah 5. And as we do that, let me give you a structure so that you can kind of follow along and see what's happening in this passage. Uh, If you look at verses 1 through 7, you're going to see what we would call the song of the vineyard. It's a song that Isaiah is singing, and it goes from verses 1 through 7. In in verse 8 through 8 through verse 25, we'll see what we call the bad fruit of the vineyard. So first the song of the vineyard and then the bad fruit of the vineyard in verses eight through 25. Uh, If you look as I read, you'll hear six different woes and and two therefores following, or four therefores total. Two woes followed by two therefores, four woes followed by two therefores. That's the structure. So you can listen to those key words. 
And then finally in verses 26 through 30, we'll see the destruction of the vineyard. The song of the vineyard, one through seven, the bad fruit of the vineyard, eight through 25, and then the destruction of the vineyard, 26 through 30. So kind of with that outline in in mind, which will also be the outline of the, the sermon, let's read Isaiah 5, verses one through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. Then the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them 
and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and will whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks at the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its cloud. God's patience and love are great. And his judgment is just. Look with me first at the song of the vineyard. Kids, I know you don't have a sheet today. Maybe you could look at this description of the vineyard and and you could draw a before and after picture of this vineyard. The vineyard as God cared for it. And then maybe when God gave it over to judgment, you'll hear the, the description of the vineyard maybe a little bit as I walk through it. But the song of the vineyard is in verses one through seven. Isaiah five begins with this love song that is also a song of lament, which seems like a strange combination. Uh, It's a song that Isaiah sings, not necessarily for his beloved, as in to his beloved, but more on behalf of his beloved. He, He sings a song that tells the story of his beloved's broken heart. And who is his beloved? His beloved is the Lord himself. Isaiah describes God's heart through a song of lament, and Isaiah can sing this song because he loves the Lord. And so he shares the joys and the sorrow of God's heart. You know, sometimes we wrongly think that the love of God and a deep love for God are reserved for the New Testament and the person of Jesus, that the God of the Old Testament was only feared by his followers. But here we find Isaiah the prophet filled with love for God, with a genuine affection, so much so that he calls God his beloved. And because Isaiah loved the Lord, what grieved God's heart also grieved his own heart. When we think about our our love for God or even for others, sometimes the only expression of love that that comes to our minds is, is joy or happiness at who God is or what he's done. That's how we show love for God. But love for another person or for God himself is is more than just simply good feelings about them. Love drives us to service for God. Love for God fills us with the desire for the things of God. And as we see here, love for God makes us grieve and be heartbroken over what grieves and breaks God's heart. Isaiah was was caught up in who God was. And because of that, he cared about what God cared about. We might ask ourselves if we share God's heart in this way. Does our love for God respond to his goodness and grace with happiness only? Or are we also grieved by the things that grieve God? Are we only concerned about ourselves and our desires? Or are we concerned about what concerns God? Could our concerns and God's concerns even join together so that our heart beats with God's heart? Well, what is it that grieves God and that even drives him to enact his justice and his judgment 
on Judah? The answer to that question comes in this, this whole chapter and the Song of the Vineyard sort of introduces those things. If you read the story of the Song of the Vineyard, the, initially we don't know who the vineyard is, which means that, that judgment is going to be made on the vineyard before the identity of the vineyard is, is revealed. So the identity of the vineyard is, is not revealed until it's already been condemned. So that way, in that way, the story functions a little bit like Nathan's story of the lamb. Do you remember that story? where Nathan tells the story of the lamb and David ends up condemning himself by passing judgment on the man. And the same thing is going to happen here. Judah will condemn themselves. In verse two, Isaiah describes everything that the Lord did for this vineyard. It was set on a fertile hill, we're told. And therefore it was set up not only for success, but it was set up to be seen by by everyone as to be an example of fruitfulness. The Lord cleared the land of stones. He, he tilled up the earth. Maybe you can see the rich soil, the straight furrows in that field. And he planted the, the best seeds. He bought the best seeds that he could find in that, and he planted them in that field. And he had hopes of this being a long-term investment, that there would be long-term fruitfulness with this vineyard. So he built a watchtower. We see later on, he built not only a hedge, but he also built a wall around it. And he even built a wine vat to store the vintage that he would take in for years to come. This was a beautiful vineyard that God had built. Maybe you can relate a little bit to that hard work, the hard work of of clearing a piece of land with the hopes of growing something there. That's not an easy process, but it's it's often a a labor of, of love. And it's one that's filled with hope for the beauty that could come from that plot of land, maybe for flowers that you'll plant there or vegetables that you might grow and enjoy. And yet the sad conclusion of all the Lord's work is the last phrase of verse two. After all he had done, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The fruit of all of his effort and all of his care and all of his love was wild grapes. In fact, the word there is more akin to stinking, rotten fruit. That's what he got. And how unexpected that is, given all of the effort, all the ways that this vineyard was set up for success and cared for by God, and the result is rotten fruit. And so in verses three and four, Isaiah asks Judah what his beloved should do with his vineyard. How should he respond to this well-cared-for vineyard that produced wild, stinking fruit? What does Judah think that his next step should be? Verses five and six tell us what the Vine dresser has decided he will do. He will remove the wall and the hedge of protection around this vineyard. He will allow weeds and briars to grow. He will not prune the vines anymore. And as the Lord himself, he will command the rain not to fall on that vineyard anymore. He will abandon it. He will forsake it. He will remove his hand from this vineyard. And that will be the judgment against it. What more could he have done? Did God fail this vineyard in some way? Was he wrong in abandoning it after doing everything possible for it to produce fruit, only to have it produce rotten fruit? Should he have done something more? Or is there simply a time when God's patience runs out, when there's nothing more he can do? The conclusion found in verse seven is where we are, the identity of the vineyard is revealed. And by now we know it's the people of Judah the people of God who had been called out from among the nations and cared for, who God says he had borne on eagles' wings and delivered from his enemy, their enemies. 
people who were set up for success, people who should have produced good fruit, the fruit of justice and righteousness, but instead they bore the stinking, rotten fruit of bloodshed and the outcries of injustice. They were supposed to exemplify God's righteousness to the nations as they stood up on this fertile hill. But instead they were violent and they were oppressive and they were greedy. The only difference between a wild vine and a domestic vine is that one is cared for and the other is not. But God's people had been supremely cared for. And yet they still remained a wild vine. So what more could be done for them? As we begin and we see this song, this chapter starts to pose some very striking questions to us. The commentator, Maltir, gives us a couple to consider. He asks, when the Lord has done all, must the darkness of divine wrath close in and the light flicker and fade? Can mercy be exhausted and defeated? Another question, is there a time when the only thing left to do is give people up to their own destruction? If the Lord seems overly harsh, if we, if we fail to reckon with the rottenness of Judah's fruit despite the care of God, the vine dresser, then let's consider the rest of chapter five because it's gonna help us to see the kind of fruit, the kind of rotten fruit that Judah was producing. So in verses 8 through 25, let's consider the bad fruit of the vineyard. We talked about the song of the vineyard. Let's move on to the bad fruit of the vineyard, verses 8 through 25. This describes the bad fruit of Judah, which seems to be primarily the result of the corrupting power of riches. Beware of the corrupting power of riches. As you read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you will find that the prosperity of Uzziah's reign set the stage for the oppression that's described here. And in fact, Uzziah himself exemplifies some of the sins that are talked about here. Remember, material blessings can be just that. They can be blessings. But if we twist them or we trust in them, they become idols that lead us to the place of being the objects of God's wrath. Now, saying all that, we are not 8th century Judah, but we are men and women with feet of clay just like them. And so it should be no surprise that we who live in the prosperity of the 21st century and the Western world, we could find in our hearts the same seeds of the rotten, stinking fruit that flows from the corrupting power of riches and wealth and ease. And if we have ears to hear, then our hearts will be soft and ready to repent of these same sins that God calls out in his people, Judah. Judah's sin, we've said, is revealed in six woes, and their judgment is announced in four therefore statements before the final pronouncement of judgment in verses 26 through 30. The first two woes are in verses 8 through 12, and they seem to focus on Judah's self-indulgence and social insensitivity. Their self-indulgence and their social insensitivity, these first two woes. If you want to summarize the first woe, which is in verses 8 through 10, with one word, I'd use the word greed. And it was the kind of greed that flowed from a complete disregard for God's laws. The rich of the land were were buying up property, and they were creating estates that isolated them from all their neighbors. 
This is in, if you know your Old Testament, this is in complete contrast to Leviticus 25, which talks about this year of Jubilee when family estates were supposed to be restored to their original owners after seven years. This is based on the idea that God said that he is loaning the land of Israel to the people of Israel. That it was not their land at all. It was his land and he was letting them live there. And so they had to give it back to people after those seven years. But these rich landowners were buying up every plot that they could get their hands on and they were neglecting people of lesser means and exploiting them and building their own estates. Their covetousness and their greed were rampant. They didn't know when they had enough. And so they kept buying and buying and buying more and more land, connecting houses, connecting lands until they had these huge estates. And the woe on this practice strikes close to our own hearts. Strikes strikes close to our Black Friday commercialism, doesn't it? It asks us if we have been consumed by our lust for more and more and more. It calls us out of commercialism. It calls us into contentment. And not just contentment, but generosity. Of knowing when enough is enough. Because gathering too much means that what we do gather will in the end be fruitless. Just as the land in verse 10 produces way less than it was supposed to. 10 acres of a vineyard yields one bath. Now that's not a bathtub if that's what you think, but it's a much less than, it's a measurement and it's much less than it should have produced. A homer of seed yields an ephah, a tenth less than was planted. And so the more we gather, the less we have. The words of Jesus fill our ears when we read these kind of indictments. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Hear those words, brothers and sisters. Beware of greed. The first woe is against greed. The second woe of verses 11 and 12 calls out the nation's self-indulgence and social insensitivity in their obsession with ease and entertainment. You might summarize this idea with a, a lust for distraction. This woe is against a lust for distraction. Isaiah looks at these at Judah and he points out that they, they sort of live to live it up. They live to drink and to be entertained. But their drunkenness betrays a similar spiritual insensitivity. They have numbed themselves to the things of God. You see that in verse 12. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Alcohol, food, entertainment in all its various forms, these are not bad in and of themselves and in moderation. And God is not against us having a good time, even in this veil of tears that we live in. But these things, when these things become what we wake up looking for and what we go to bed thinking about, that's what is described here. They rise in the morning, I need a drink. They go to bed at night, I need a drink. We rise in the morning, entertain me. We go to bed at night, watching entertainment. All these things that that come to us. But when these things become what we wake up looking for and go to bed thinking about, we have lost sight of more valuable things. 
when these things become refuges that we turn to so that we can tune out life, then we are on shaky ground. Too often, let's be honest, we are slaves to our screens and to our stomachs. And the still small voice of God is silenced because of those things. We don't hear him. In our search for entertainment, we also often seek these things out at the expense of others, the expense of loved ones that we ignore, or even strangers that we might exploit for our own entertainment. Well, the only thing with a bigger appetite than these greedy land grabbers and chasers of mirth is Sheol. That's what we're told. The realm of the dead, verse 14, says that Sheol will devour us in the end if we persist in self-indulgence and social insensitivity. Men and women will be humbled at death and on the day of judgment. And the stuff that we have amassed will be worth nothing. Just as these cities we read in verse 17 become a pasture for livestock. They become the place where nomads live. Everything that they had amassed is worthless. In contrast though, the Lord of hosts is exalted. Verse 16, and the holy God shows himself holy in his righteousness. Woe to us. God's word says, if we become consumed with greed and with an insatiable lust for pleasure and entertainment outside of Christ, both of which will cause us to numb ourselves to the needs of the people around us. Well, these woes build on each other and the next four uh, happen in, in, are, are in verses 18 through 23. They kind of dig deeper, I think, into the heart of Judah's bad fruit as well as the heart of our own bad fruit. The third woe of verses 18 and 19 is against arrogance towards God. It's a woe against arrogance or pride towards God. They draw sin to themselves, we're told in verse 18, and then they mock God's apparent inactivity. These folks arrogantly assume that if they can't see God working, then he must not be. But the problem is that their eyes are so full of themselves that they can't hear or see God's hand among them. And so God pronounces a woe on their arrogance. The fourth woe, verse 20, is against the acceptance of sin as righteousness. Woe to those who are, who are fallen to accepting sin as righteousness. These are beautiful, devastating verses. What is obviously against, against God and his ways is deemed okay. Evil is called good. This illustration of light and darkness might focus on public morality, while bitter and sweet, which are more personal tastes, focus, focuses on private morality, that we get to decide what's right and what's wrong. E- either way, the problem is that a standard of righteousness has been lost so that people think that they are capable of judging what is righteous on their own. We see this in our culture, but we see it in our own hearts, don't we? In our sinfulness, we are all crooked. We are all like a level. If you've ever used a level, we're like a level that's warped or bent. We can't tell what is true and what is level. Instead, we should hold up the standard of God's word and of his character as what reveals to us what is evil and what is good. But the arrogance of that third woe, this this arrogant 
Arrogance towards God leads to an acceptance of sin as righteousness because we think that we can decide what's right and wrong. We think that we understand what is evil and what is good. We see this all over our culture, don't we? This is why we're so confused on issues of gender and sexuality, on racism and sexism, on wealth and poverty, and on so many other issues. It's because we've decided that we know better than God. We think we've become more progressive and more astute, but our judgments are just foolishness. Which is why the fifth woe, verse 21, speaks against autonomy and conceit. Autonomy or independence and conceit. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. What's the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. What's the beginning of wisdom? One of my favorite Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is to recognize that I don't have wisdom and to acknowledge my need of God's truth. But so often we fall prey to thinking that wisdom does not begin with God, but it begins with us. We think that we don't need God. We can figure things out on our own. Woe to us. Woe towards those who are arrogant towards God, who accept sin as righteousness, who are trust in themselves and are conceited. And then the sixth and final woe, verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who celebrate unrighteousness. Woe to those who celebrate unrighteousness. A rejection of, of God as the Lord, a rejection of his standards, leads to a perversion of what is celebrated and a perversion of justice. So here, Judah is giving trophies to people who can drink the most and people who can mix really good drinks and get other people drunk. Judah is honoring people who take advantage of the innocent and acquit the guilty for a bribe. Bribe. We're talking backroom deals, the exploitation of the weak. These are the things that are celebrated which is certainly the result of this arrogance run wild and of a disregard for God's standards of justice and righteousness. Woe to those who celebrate unrighteousness. I think these last four woes are summed up well in verse 24, where it says, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And in rejecting that word, They have thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Therefore, verses 24 and 25, they will be consumed like burning grass and they will face the full force of God's anger. That's the threat for all who would reject God's law and his rule. This is the judgment that will come on all who persist in unrepentance. And such attitudes will be judged in our own hearts if we fail to turn from our arrogance and submit to Christ's rule. This all comes to a climax in verses 26 through 30 with the destruction of the vineyard. The destruction of the vineyard, verses 26 through 30. These verses give us this detailed description of the judgment that's going to come. And the judgment comes when God, the sovereign Lord, calls the nations to come and judge Judah. Do you see that description in verse 26 where it says, he whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Can you hear that? God whistles for the nations, like you might whistle for a dog to come. 
and they come and do his bidding. He strengthens these nations such that they don't stumble or they don't take a false step. They're like a lion. They hunt their prey. And who's going to try to rescue a gazelle from the mouth of a lion? Nobody's smart. We're reminded of God's sovereign control over earthly powers and how God chooses to use worldly kings and nations for his purposes. Nations will be judged for their sins, but they are also equipped by God to enact justice on his people. They're seen in these verses as uniquely equipped to enact judgment. And the result in verse 30 is chilling. It's darkness and distress. We come to the end of this chapter and we ask those questions again. When the Lord has done all, must the darkness of divine wrath close in and the light flicker and fade? Can mercy be exhausted and defeated? Is there a time when the only thing left to do is to give people up to their own destruction? One answer is yes. There will be a day when God judges all sin and when judgment comes upon all who have rebelled against him, when the standard of righteousness will be made clear and everyone who does not measure up will be judged unless they have found refuge in Christ. Yes, there is a time when God gives us up. But another answer to those questions could be, yes, judgment will come, but not yet. Let me tell you about another parable of a similar vineyard, but this one focuses on a fig tree in that vineyard. This is Luke chapter 13. It's a short parable. Luke 13, verses six through nine, Jesus tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What's the point of that parable? I think it shows us the mercy of God and the patience of God. Three years was plenty of time for that fig tree to bear fruit. And as with the, the prophecy, uh, the parable of Isaiah 5, none of us would think it wrong for the Lord to give that tree over to its own destruction, to cut it down. But here in Luke 13, we're reminded of the patience and the long suffering of God that he says to the justice that cries out against those who rebel against him. He says, give them one more year. Give them another year. Let's see if there's anything else I can do. I know I've done everything. But give them another year. Christ has done everything, hasn't he? As far as even sending his own son. Another parable tells us about another vineyard and some wicked tenants in that vineyard. And they rejected all of the messengers that came to it. 
just as Israel rejected the prophets like Isaiah. But the Lord in his mercy sends one more messenger, you remember? He sends his son. And what do the wicked tenants do? They beat him and they kill him. But even still, the Lord is patient. And the son who was killed is raised to life and he offers forgiveness and life even to those who killed him, to those who will repent. God's patience and his love are great. And his judgment is just. Judgment is coming. And it will be right when God judges sin. But he is patient, not willing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Finally, notice this, that not only is Jesus the patient owner of the vineyard, but Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the one who bears good fruit of obedience that none of us could. Jesus, unlike these woes pronounced against Judah and against our own hearts, Jesus was never greedy. He was never unjust. He was never arrogant or unrighteous, but he fulfilled all righteousness. And yet, through his death on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the punishment for all of these woes that are pronounced against us. Jesus bore the weight of every therefore in Isaiah chapter 5. And he absorbed the wrath of the destruction of the vineyard on our behalf. We deserve to be destroyed. But Jesus was destroyed for us. And now that he has risen, he invites us through faith, not only to be forgiven and to be saved from this wrath that is coming from the day of the Lord, but he invites us to abide in him and do what? Bear fruit. Not stinking, rotten fruit, but good fruit. Fruit of justice and righteousness. Jesus says this, these familiar words, John 15, 1 through 5. What's he say? I am the vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John fifteen five. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we will never be fruitful. We will never accomplish what he has called us to do. We will never bear fruit of justice and righteousness. And in fact, we will face his wrath against us because of our rebellion and our fruitlessness. But if we repent and we believe in his atoning death and his perfect life, then you know what he does? We who had been cut off are grafted in. We become a part of the vine. And as we abide in him, we produce good fruit. Not fruit of greed, but of generosity. Not of a lust for distraction, but of a love for others. Not of arrogance, but of humble trust, not of celebrating sin, but of rejoicing in the truth. This is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus takes the penalty for our sin upon himself, the penalty we deserve, the woes that we deserve, 
because we have not borne fruit, though Christ has done everything necessary to help us. And he forgives us, and then he grafts us in and says, be fruitful as you abide in me. Christ is the true vine. And here, as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his righteousness. But we also remember that he was crushed for our iniquities. As I thought about that, I couldn't help as thinking about this vineyard of, of thinking about how a grape is, is crushed to produce wine. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to make a way for us to be forgiven and to be fruitful.